Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Alfie Marsh, head of US go to market at Spendisk. In this episode, we talk about Alfie's responsibilities as head of USGTM, the differences between the go to market strategies launching in the US versus the UK, and the different ways their sales team contributes to retention. We also discuss the positive impact on churn by knowing exactly who your ideal customer profile is when sourcing outbound leads, identifying and reaching out to outbound prospects, and how product positioning has the power to transform your company. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael. And here's today's episode. Hey, Alfie, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. For the listeners, Alfie is the head of US go-to-market at Spendesk, the all-in-one spending solution for finance teams. Alfie started out as a sales development rep and worked his way up to head of US GTM through a time of explosive growth for Spendesk. Uh, prior to Spendesk, Alfie was at Bloomberg working on global electronic trading sales on hedge funds and buy side. So... My first question for you, Alfie, is what are you responsible for at Spendex as the head of USGTM? And maybe also what is global electronic trading sales and hedge funds and buy side? I had to read that a couple of times when I was running to the buyer. <laughs> yeah, it's an absolute mouthful, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, well, the, the trading side, we, in short, uh, I used to sell trading solutions to banks and, and hedge funds. So uh, instead of people picking up the phone and, and ringing their broker to buy and, uh, and, and sell stuff, they do it over uh, electronic platforms. And so I used to sell those solutions. Um, and to the, to the other question, what, what do I actually do at, <laughs> at Spendesk in the US? It's a good question. So historically, I looked after the, the UK market in the kind of first couple of years of my time at Spendesk. Um, really launching that from the get-go, uh, building the initial team and the initial revenue uh, machine there. Um, and then about a year, year and a bit ago, I moved over to uh, San Francisco to help launch Spendesk in the US. So very much from a, a similar perspective, uh, however, under quite a different context. You know, we're four or five years later into the market. There's a lot more competition. Spend management is a lot more uh, evolved and, and mature in the market. Uh, and so my main responsibilities are to work with the sales, marketing, product and engineering teams uh, to have a successful go to market and get our initial traction in the US. 
I think that's very interesting. And I'd like to touch on that a little bit more. So what you're saying as well is like in the early days, you start out Spendesk, you were like approaching the UK market. It was a slightly like immature market, less competition, less understanding of the space. So you had to adopt a certain strategy when it came to go to market. And now moving to the US, you have to rethink that strategy, going into a more mature market, bigger players, uh, to try and make it in like... What are some of the differences that you see in the two strategies now? Like, uh, how do they differ from that first time, like launching up in the UK to now in the US? Yeah, it's quite interesting. We've got, so we're a French company. So we're born and raised in, in Paris, France. Uh, but pretty much almost from day one, we started operating for the UK market and the German market. So I joined this when there was around 20 people in, in the company. So we were quite international from day one. Now, when I look back at the kind of lessons learned and mistakes that we made in, in those markets, I would say that the inexperience means that we didn't know how much of a product market fit we actually had at the time. So our biggest mistake was not being more aggressive in our expansion and uh, you know putting the foot on the gas, so to speak. Whereas in the context now where you know, spend management is more mature, it's also a lot more mature in the uh, US market. So we're coming to the, to the party in a different context. Uh, products and solutions are more mature. The market understands the, the context of spend management. Uh, the goals are different of the customers here and so on and so forth. So the product that we have needs a lot of adapting. In addition to that, unlike uh, a product, for example, you take like an intercom, which has a quite a ubiquitous product market fit. doesn't matter what country it is, seven lines of code and it works on your website. With Spendesk, we are a financial technology company, uh, which means that we have a big element of fintech, uh, which changes in every country from regulations and so on and so forth. So there's a big element of adaptation that we need to go through to make sure that we have right product, right for the right bit. And so our go-to-market approach is slightly different in terms of instead of just launching a sales and revenue machine, uh, we are also focusing on building out the product and developing the market right from the beginning. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I think it was great that you mentioned the intercom example, because that was some of the questions that was coming to my mind was like, I'm pretty sure there's regulatory uh, like forms that you need to like comply with the different markets, the different needs, especially when you're dealing with fintech. So I can definitely see how that changes market by market and the challenges probably get greater or less depending on, on the region that you're entering. Um, and would you say there's like, in terms of the overall go-to-market strategy, then like the way to acquire and approach customers, has anything changed between the two different markets? Have, has, have you had any learnings from the UK now that you're bringing to the US? Any playbooks that you found effective, work effectively well? Yeah, I, I mean, fundamentally, we're, we're an outbound uh, company. Uh, we're really driven by our sales team and, and outbound sales in particular. Uh, that's kind of got us from you know, a 0 to 10 million phase of, of, of revenue. Um, but obviously, as you, as you kind of get past your $10 million uh, worth of ARR, you need to be able to diversify your channels so that you can then scale from 10 to, 10 to 100. So in our core markets, we're more diversifying from our outbounds to have uh, partnerships and other, channel, uh, uh, other channels, inbound marketing. We're having a lot more of our leads coming in from inbound as our brand uh, builds and so on and so forth. 
So in the US, it's interesting because <clears throat> we have, from starting from scratch, you kind of have all of these different channels that are available to you. Uh, and so you can test all of these different ones out. Um, so for one thing that we don't have when we come over to the US is our strong brand, which is something that we do have in Europe and can rely on. So naturally, you're not going to go straight into the market having a lot of inbound leads. So you have to go out there again with the outbound focus in the early stages to get those conversations with customers and then start building your brand and building your connections within the industry. Um, I think that something that is quite interesting as a distinction between the two is the amount that you can acquire in terms of contract value size often tends to be much larger in the US. There's an element with Spendesk that part of our pricing revolves around how much money people spend on the platform. And just the average amount of money that people spend on things like SaaS tools in the US is probably like 10x what people spend in Europe. So there's yeah. naturally a big boost in there. Now that, um, that has an interesting dynamic because it means there is uh, a different uh, lifetime value to cost of acquisition ratio. Uh, and if you are able to have a higher lifetime value, it means you can get a bit more experimentive, uh, experimental with your uh, cost of acquisitions and therefore your different channels, uh, which is something I think, you know, Guillaume Caban, who you had on uh, previously was talking about, you know, the difference yeah. with that, that, that play. Uh, and it allows you to be, if you can be competitive in your acquiring costs, or your contract values, it allows you to actually have a different channel model. And a competitive muscle there. Absolutely. Um, and that's something as well, like talking a little bit more to now is in terms of like working your way up and increasing that contract value. Um, do you have any specific payback period that you're always aiming for, irrespective of like how the LTV increases? Because I think at some point as well, uh, you want to get that return on investment in. Like, is there any sort of set targets you set yourself? So it's because in my mind, like something like Spendisk, I think it feels like it's a, an enormously sticky product in the sense that once you've got a good fit customer in the door, uh, like, there's very few cases where they'll actually want to churn because you, you end up like being the backbone to how they transact, uh, at least with yep. their team. So do you have anything like specific then in terms of like payback periods that you shoot and aim for? Like how are you measuring like, success then in, in this case? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, you want your payback period to be as short as possible uh, and really around like 12 months or, or, or less. I think that what's interesting is in that uh, calculation of the lifetime value of your customer and over the cost to acquire them there's there's other elements which you can then play with so within the lifetime value of the customer it's going to be what's the amount of revenue you can get per customer times how long they can actually stay for and obviously hence with the with the churn aspect right um it becomes a really important part like you said for spenders we have a, a ridiculously strong um churn number uh, in terms of <clears throat> both the amount of companies that actually ever leave Spendesk is super low compared to industry standard. And that's probably a big part to play around the quality of the product, but also the nature of uh, ripping out something which is so at the heart of your business around spending money uh, is quite complicated and people just don't want to do it, um, yeah. which, is, which is great. So people don't churn. And that means that the lifetime value naturally increases. Um, and again, that's another aspect of how you can then get more creative with your acquisition channels because you have this dynamic which other competitors or other just vendors and different uh, scenarios, just, they cannot play with. Yeah. Uh, and then at some point as well, like you say, you can get so much more creative. You can pour money into different channels. You can run experiments because, you know, ultimately that money is coming back uh, and slowly over time you can work towards reducing the payback period. Uh, nice. So let's talk about look in the context then of churn and retention itself as well. And specifically now at Spendesk where the idea of like 
having a customer that's always going to almost be certainly to stick with you. Like what are some of the ways that sales is contributing to retention? And in my mind, like the, the most obvious comes is like net MRR retention is uh, through upsells and expansion. And uh, how much of a role, like is the sales team like focusing on this? Is this more a sales driven initiative at Spendesk or is it a customer success driven initiative? Yeah, I think for us, we we work quite well across the entire funnel from the sales, from the marketing, the sales and the customer success <clears throat> process. We have uh, a handover with our sales team and our customer success during the onboarding. We have a natural period where there's quite a close relationship because we, when we bring on customers, they have to go through a KYC uh, process before they get fully onboarded. Uh, and the nature of us, uh, because again, we're a spend management platform, we can actually take our bill in from the funds that are on the client's platform itself. So effectively from, again, from like a, a handover perspective, it's in the sales best interest that the uh, customer is fully onboarded because it's the moment that there's funds on the platform that they consider they closed clients. So there's, there's kind of, we, we naturally integrate parts of the workflow to make it in the best interest for the sales and the customer success team to be aligned. Um, but also there's, there's many different ways that you can, um, that you can align the two. I've seen this in other companies, for example, where sales teams, part of their bonus will be determined on uh, the number of customers that are there after three months, for example. Uh, and again, in Spendesk, one of the ways that we would count, for example, our new MRR, which is a part of the targets of the salespeople, is in the first three months. So for us, for example, part of our revenue is going to be based on usage. So when someone on board with Spendesk, they're not going to be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on Spendesk on day one. That will increase over time. But the more that you can get that within the first three months, then the more that's going to contribute towards the sales rep. Uh, and their variable. So there's a naturally kind of ingrained incentive for the sales rep to help the customer success, understand what the success metrics are, what are all the blockers to uh, onboarding, setting up timelines uh, so that as soon as that the, the customer success person takes the account, they're off to the races and they're running away with the account. And so there's naturally going to be more spending happening and usage earlier on. So we do that in, in a multitude of different ways. Yeah, I think this is so important when it comes to sales is like having good targets and goals that are aligned with long term success, because more often than not as well, uh, like if it's if sales aren't given the rails, if they aren't given the incentives, like it's just like closing deals, bringing the wrong uh, types of companies into uh, the funnel, like sending them off to success and then ultimately churning down the line just because they aren't good fits. So. I'm interested, like you mentioned, uh, the outbound strategy being really like core to uh, your go-to-market strategy at the early days in the UK and then now in the US. How much of like identifying your ideal customer profile comes into play when sourcing your outbound leads? And what did that process look like, like identifying them and how, how are you going about reaching them? Huge, yeah, enormous. It's, it's, it's um, one of the most critical parts. Um, and it is also one of the reasons why outbound is so effective, because if you do know your ICP and you can figure that out and there is strong repeatability, it means that you're going to go and uh, acquire customers that are a really great fit. And that has a direct relationship to the amount of churn that you're going to have at the other end and their success on the platform. In, when you have inbound, you have less control necessarily who's going to come in. So your goal there is to more 
um, go through and sift through those different customers and then try and onboard the ones that are going to be the best fit. But naturally, you're going to have people where it's relatively low effort to onboard them. You're still getting revenue. There's an incentive for people to close these deals. But the, you know, the, the NPS score is going to kind of be hmm, not, not too great, not too bad in the middle. And so there's a real danger of that uh, middle zone because it's attractive to onboard them. There's, there's not necessarily an upfront cost. But having those kind of customers is there's a huge cost in the long run because they require more attention from support as well as customer success. And they do end up churning and it is very costly in terms of cost of acquisition. And not only that as well, I think it's like you'd be getting a whole bunch of feedback from potentially bad fit customers and uh, like causing confusion when it comes to product. Uh, like what do we build next? And you have a whole bunch of requests coming in from uh, bad fit customers. Like ultimately you're getting mixed signals where, uh, like you say, focusing really on your ICP. So I, I'm interested then as well, like in the outreach process when it comes to this, because obviously within your like ideal customer profile, uh, you have specific buyer personas and those that are more likely to be the purchase of the software versus the users of the software. Even if you understand like what the company profile looks like, um, yeah. So how are you going about sort of identifying the buyer personas and then how are you actually reaching out to them in the early days? Like what are some of the ways that you're uh, trying to get to them? Yeah, I, I think so. If we again, if we kind of go uh, like take a step back and look at the high level as well, when we're talking about the difference between you know the UK and European go to markets versus the US. One of the reasons why outbound is so helpful for us is because we don't necessarily know who our ideal customer profile is and who our persona is at the beginning. Now we've having four and a half years of experience in, in Europe, we've got a pretty good, uh, like, you know, intuition, a uh, good place to start with, but ultimately you've got to take the approach that you could be completely wrong for a multitude of reasons. So we really start off with uh, listing out a bunch of hypotheses and saying, okay, we think that this type of client in uh, this type of buyer in this position in this type of company of this size and this can, you know, this event has happened uh, is going to be a good uh, a good fit for us. And then so we then go about validating that. And again, this is what Outbound really works for us because we can be very picky in who we speak to and we want to validate those that segment and say, okay, this was correct or not. And then if it wasn't, understand why and then reshift and go to a different uh, different segment and different potential ICP. Um, in, in your, your other question was what was the different processes that we have around uh, outreaching or how do we look at the different buyer personas and know which one's the correct one? Yes, that was it. So I think for us, we have, uh, in terms of the way that we outbound prospect, we have a multi-channel approach through uh, emails, calls, LinkedIn, uh, lots of different uh, areas, different people like different channels in terms of being reached on. Um, but in terms of the people that we speak to, like you said, they're economic buyers, there's different users, there's decision makers, there's people that are quite far uh, removed. And this also changes depending on the size of the company. So if I give you like a really concrete example, um, Spendesk is a really good fit for a finance team which has a lot of generalist tasks meaning if you take a pyramid of tasks at the top are super strategic and at the bottom are you know low value added manual tasks in a large corporation where there's five six seven eight finance people all of those tasks along that pyramid are going to be specialized and one person will look after them in a generalist finance team you're going to have maybe one or two people that actually have to do all of the tasks across that pyramid now for us, there's a, that's a really good fit for us because we can automate those low value added tasks and then liberate their time so they can focus on the more strategic things. So there's a higher 
uh, ROI for these people in automating those low value added tasks. So what does that mean in terms of how would we think about our outbound uh, approach? We'd say, okay, in what scenarios are they going to be more generalist finance teams? We'd look at the size of the company. It's more likely to be between a, a, tw a 20 employee company and 200 employees. It's going to be the number of finance people per employees in the company as a ratio. So one finance person, one to two finance people per hundred people is like a sweet spot for us, for example. Yeah. But all of these things um, we learn through having a hypothesis and going out and contacting people and either falling on our face or managing to close deals. And then we take that and say, hmm, there's, there's a trend here as to what works. Now, again, if you use inbound in a go-to-market, you have so much less control over who you speak to. And so it really can impact your learning curve. Yeah, uh, makes a lot of sense. And I think as well, like what next question I want to ask on the back of this thing is like, you're speaking to a lot of customers, you're getting a lot of data points all the time, you're learning and you're evolving uh, as you go along. At the same time, I think marketing does their own bits, trying to understand, okay, who this ideal customer profile is, products doing their own components of it. Like, how are you then sort of sharing these insights back within the team? How are you then evolving the strategy and understanding if you have so many different agents speaking to different people, like, where are the signals coming in? How are you centralizing this information for your team to learn? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I think there's um, the, the informational learnings comes in through the, the funnel, right? So there's information around which positioning um, uh, actually works and resonates. And this is much more uh, the SDRs and the account executives. They're going to have an, uh, an understanding of that. So this is more top and mid of the funnel. Then there's, okay, you know, wh where do we actually win versus other competitors in the market and what closes, what type of companies actually go through? Uh, and then there's on the other side, okay, once a company is a customer of Spendesk, uh, what is their usage? How good is their usage? And is there indicators that their usage is poor and they might churn or that they've got good sticky indicators that they'll stay with us? So there's kind of all the way through the funnel, different types of feedback. Now, we tend to split that um, into two groups a customer facing feedback uh, orientated group and then a product one. So we that's how, that's how we split our go to market team as well, customer facing and then product. So our product and engineering is based in France and our customer facing team is here in San Francisco. We have a weekly meeting uh, with our executive committee for the US go to market, which includes our CEO, product people and so on. Um, and then one of those is going to be based around more of those learnings from customer facing and that side of things. And then others is going to be based around uh, the product and therefore what the roadmap is. So it's just super important that you have a very fluid feedback loop that continues uh, all the time. And it's the what we're building in the product is going to feed how we're going to position and how we're going to pivot that positioning. And then the feedback we get there is then going to determine what the strategy is and what we prioritize in terms of our product roadmap. Yeah, because like in my mind, I'm just thinking about all these conversations that are coming through. There's like great things like you meant for positioning that customers might say in a call. It's like, oh, that's a great way to position the product. Obviously, the best yeah. copy you're ever going to get is like from your customers' mouths. And yeah. uh, interesting <laughs> just to sort of see like how you're bringing that back in, then uh, feeding that back into marketing, into products, into the company so people understand and can take advantage of it. Um, yeah, the, I mean, in terms of just like, operationally the, the the best quickest and easiest way to do that is get a call recorder whether it's you know gong mojo in europe or grain.co has just come out which is great for taking out snippets you can record them take snippets out and then we have created a, a chat in slack which is for more like marketing uh, inspiration the words of the customers and for us that's like super powerful for the product marketers um 
if like you said if you're using yeah. the words that are coming out of your customer's mouth you're really speaking in their in their terms and that has really helped and impacted a lot of our pitches and positioning and, and how we uh, talk about spend desk yeah, I love that. And you mentioned a few uh, companies. I will add those as notes in the show notes as well. Check them out. I've also came across Grain.co recently. Uh, found it super interesting as well and uh, can see a huge value coming out of that just from the snippets alone from a copywriting perspective. Um, cool. So we chatted as well just before the show in terms of like when it comes to having a heavy outbound strategy, uh, sometimes you overlook like your existing customer base and the opportunity to upsell and to grow revenue from them. Um, mm. Maybe you want to talk us through a little bit of your thinking on this and uh, where you see missed opportunities in companies today. Yeah, I think there is a, a, a crazy thirst for acquiring new customers, which makes sense uh, because you want to capture market share. I think where the problem uh, comes is not necessarily the thirst to acquire new customers, but it's the strategy around pricing and monetizing those customers. Um, I think obviously everyone's looking for that kind of top line revenue growth so that you can go to your next round of uh, uh, funds, fundraising and, and get funds. Um, but monetizing or pricing for monetization and pricing for increasing your revenue is not necessarily what you want to do in those first stages. So in 0 to 10 million of ARR, you want to acquire more of the market. There's, um, I was reading a book, uh, it's called Scaling the Revenue Engine. I think it's by Tom Moore, M-O-H-R. We can put it in the notes after, um, where he discusses the what is the cost to acquire $1 of revenue through different channels. So I think, uh, I think I've got it down here somewhere. So it's $1.18. It costs that much to acquire $1 of new revenue if you're going to a new customer. So basically, from an outbound sales perspective, it's going to cost you $1.18 to have $1 of revenue, which is expensive. However, if you were to get $1 of revenue from upselling to an existing client, that's going to cost you $0.28. Cent. And if you acquire $1 of revenue from a referral, it costs you $0.13. Cents which is ridiculously cheap. <laughs> it's yeah. like going, going back to that point of a lot of the, the game is around increasing your LTV and lowering your CAC. These are huge uh, cost saving initiatives. Um, and when you, when you price at the front end or for revenue and you're acquiring your new customers, I understand that because you're paying for these outbound reps, they're expensive. Uh, you you $1 in, want to get $1 out, but really it's actually a lot cheaper to uh, monetize your existing customers. So it's much better to price for acquisition of market share, i.e. be competitive. It may be in the amount that you price or the way that your pricing is done. And then just focus on having that you know, critical mass and then monetizing on the back end through upsells and through different products. And I, I see that as being a strategy in those early stages as being critical. Um, that is also very different if you're post 10 million, for example, you're probably going to be more likely to want to have more efficiencies in, in the, the front loading of your price and the monetization. Yeah. I think pricing and packaging is like, it's a step change when it comes to companies. Like it's that moment when you can sort of accelerate growth for them. And I think, like you say, there's this huge undervalued segment of how we can grow. And I think uh, when you mentioned the the stats as well, I, I can't remember. I think it might have been Jason Lemkin in one of his blog posts that I read, or one or someone or the like uh, VC was that at some point in a SaaS business's lifetime, uh, eventually around forty percent or more of your revenue comes from referrals and word of mouth. 
Uh, mm. So it almost becomes like at a certain tipping point, it becomes the engine. Uh, and spending time early on to really look, nail that strategy and how you're getting customers to refer and how you're getting um, like expansion uh, rolling with your existing customer base, like leads to a really, really healthy business overall with your like a really, really strong net tomorrow retention. Um, and overall, like spending, like you know that for every dollar, like if you don't do anything to your business today, like your business is still going to be growing by next year this time. If you have a really, really strong net tomorrow retention, I think, that in SaaS is like the holy grail. Like when you can hit that point where you're growing irrespective of if you're acquiring new customers or not, uh, that is yeah. the definition of a successful SaaS business to me, I think. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Get, when you get the, the flywheel going and it takes care of itself. I mean, there's also an element in those early stages of, um, you know, there's multiple ways we've done this at Spendesk, but um, you want to really increase your exposure to learning early on. So for example, taking, you know, the pricing one is an example, because if you price for market acquisition, by nature, you're going to have more customers, more people that are exposed to your products, more feedback, different segments, and you're going to expand your learning a lot quicker. Um, you know, equally in Spendless, we took a really unconventional strategy, which is to go international pretty early on, um, which is going to affect your impact to grow rapidly in any one market because you're naturally uh, diluting your resources across markets. Um, but at the same time, there's a huge pro of doing that, which is the amount of learnings you're getting from other markets. And especially in an international expansion, it's, it's really hard for US companies actually to come into, into Europe because they go from one big market to then a super fragmented market with different languages, different cultures, uh, you know, different product market fits. Uh, and it's really difficult. Whereas you know, in Spendes, we went quite large in yeah. France, UK, Germany, and Spain, things like this at first, and then um, went uh, went abroad. But we've got years worth of experience that would take a company, you know, five to 10 plus years to be able to get just because we tried to ex increase our exposure to learning early on. Yeah, uh, I think like that exposure to learning early on is, is critical uh, because a lot of the times like in the beginning, you don't know yet who your ideal customer profile is. I think you like have a good understanding of the problem and you maybe do a little bit of research, like 100, 200 interviews, but really it's not enough to understand like which way the market's going to take the company and where the biggest opportunity is. And I think a lot of times as well, like especially when it comes to go-to-market strategy, one of the lessons I learned as well at Hotshot was like when you go out and you set your initial go-to-market strategy and you try and base it off your current customer base so at some point like you said like 10 million ARR, 20 million ARR. looking mm. at your current customer base is not always the best place to look for the all go-to-market strategy because your current customers are a direct result of the marketing and sales that you've done to date uh, mm. and not a direct result of where the biggest opportunity may lie for your company and which way the market is moving as well so uh, yeah. I think you have this opportunity for learning but the, also at the same time you've always got to be learning and you've got to be taking a step back and looking okay which way is the market moving? Where's the opportunity going? Like, is it the direction we're moving in? And you've got to constantly question this. I think like, uh, and that's the thing that makes like SaaS and uh, this types of businesses so tricky is that like, it's a constant moving target that product market fits. Uh, yeah, it is. And you know, what you're referring to there is like an element of survivorship bias, right? There's a, a story when uh, I think it was in either World War One or World War Two, where there were planes that came back from the war uh, and they had, they mapped out all the bullet holes on the planes. And the military wanted to reinforce the planes where there was these massive bullet holes. And this statistician came along and said, hang on, guys, this is not actually what you want to do. What you want to do is reinforce the areas where there are no bullet holes. And they're like, uh, OK, why? 
And they were like, well, the planes that have these bullet holes have come back. Come so back. <laughs> you want to, you want to reinforce the ones that didn't. And yeah. it was funny because the bullet holes where they weren't any bullet holes were all around the engine where the seat of the, the pilot is and so on and so forth. You know, and when you take that example and you put it into like, uh, you know, looking at your client base, you can have like a super strong NPS score, low churn within like a given segment. And you can be like, this is great. Our product's amazing. And yeah, it is. But for that segment, like it's great for the ones that survived it through the process. But yeah. if you don't take a step back and say, okay, well, what are all the customers that never came to us because our positioning sucks or we not getting enough distribution and people want knowing about our, our, our product or we are going after this thing, which we were really good fit for, but there's this huge opportunity. If we just tweaked our product a little bit and our positioning, we could go after this. Yeah. And so you always have to have that beginner's mindset. Yeah, take that information from your existing customers, but don't take it as a, as a given fact. Use it as a base to create hypotheses for, but always be trying to be starting the page completely blank and, and reiterating your learnings as you go. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think like maybe in my past, I underestimated the power of positioning itself. Like uh, obviously, mm-hmm. I, I, like as previous as well, working as a product market, I always like found it extremely important. But this time, like now I'm starting my fourth company uh, and like just seeing the product we've built today and how just changing slight like tweaks in positioning can like put you against like a whole new market, a whole new trajectory. And it's literally just like three or four words might change in the positioning statement and you're building a new business. Uh, Although like the product itself might not change very much. And I love this as well because I think this was like Freshworks did it like where they they built a product and they realized okay they were serving like whatever it was support and if they just tweaked it slightly they could be supporting like DevOps and engineering and they created Mm -hmm. a whole new product with exactly the same product just changing a few words and the way they position the product to different market and really like that's uh, can be game changers again where you open up these new opportunities unlock new markets like just by having a really, really good understanding like you said like taking a step back, looking at the survivorship bias. I love that analogy as well of the plane uh, and the warships. And uh, you can open up some really exciting opportunities for your business. Uh, so. Huge. I mean, positioning is like, a, we, I can give you a personal example from Spendesk. I mean, there's, I, I love, I love positioning. There's so many examples we could talk about, talk about this for hours, but one that I've experienced personally, you know, Spendesk, we, we're a mix of like a, a card as well as a software platform. It's card and software, but the you know traditional Amex doesn't have all these processes to capture receipts and do all the geo coding and month end closing that. Yeah. Uh, and then you have these tools like Expensify, for example, that are really just more software tools. And then you kind of have an external payment method, right? So there's there's this kind of positioning thing when we when we built spend management tools. It was the first time this kind of existed. So people were like, well, what are you? Are you an expense tool? Are you a, a credit card? And it was kind of like you know, we had this positioning question. And I think one of the important things of that is depending you you need to have some sort of anchor to uh, a category or something that people already understand so that they can categorize you but you want to be in control of that narrative Um, and so for example if you position yourself uh, you know as like a card every type of category comes with their own assumptions and associations so if we position ourselves as a credit card then that means that people are going to think okay well there's credit that means what are the insurance and guarantees on like payments on here uh, what about rewards and cashback and these sorts of things? And that's really not our value proposition. Like we yeah. can do that sort of stuff, but it's not why you come to us. You come to us because of this operational process and efficiency that we built around it. Yeah. And so you kind of have to just making those tweaks in the presentation of how you tell the story 
has a huge impact in terms of that top of the funnel. And again, going back to your point about feedback loops into the product, this is also really important because there are reasons that we may not close the deals at the top of the funnel, which have nothing to do with the actual products and their usage once it comes on board. Uh, yeah. And you just have to have that feedback loop. So you make sure you're making the right decisions. Absolutely. And I can see as well, like how uh, that can go really one way or the other. Just that example you mentioned, I was like, if you had gone heavy on the credit card side, you'd be getting people coming in requesting features for like credit lines and uh, like yeah. and discounts and things and going the spend management side, then you'd have those features around like, how do I manage my expenses? How do I get receipts in? Like, And then you start to have your product team focusing on one way or the other. And all that's really changed is like, three or four words in your positioning statement and who you are and which category you're aligning with and people have different expectations. Uh, so, I mean, back, back to the, the kind of topic for this podcast as well around how does that link to actually churn satisfaction? I mean, it's hugely important at the top of the funnel that you're positioning yourselves in the right way so that the right client knows, hey, I'm the right customer for your, for your product so that their expectations, when they come to a salesperson, they're already aligned with the value proposition so that they know as long as your product does what you say it does, they're going to be happy. Yeah. Whereas if that kind of Venn diagram of expectations versus reality kind of doesn't overlap as much, that's when you get that frustration and you've got to be really careful to proactively actually take those people out of the pipeline and to not qualify them, even if it feels like it's an easier thing at the, at the beginning. Yeah. And then when you pass that over to a customer success, setting those expectations and being like, these, this is what you want to achieve. And this is exactly how we can help you do it. And if we're successful, this should be the ROI that you're going to you're going to look at. And these are the success metrics that we're going to track during your three months of onboarding uh, to see whether it, it's been good or not. Because also, if you don't have that sort of um, layout, when you come to the end of that you know, onboarding period and the customer then says, I, you know, I'm not happy, I'm going to churn uh, for whatever reason. You, you don't really know because you've kind of said, well, hang on a minute, we didn't set any success metrics. So I don't really know how to gauge whether this has been good for you or not. And then it's just, yeah. you know, by that time, the conversation's dead, you know, you, good luck on your learning. Uh, at least if you set those success metrics, which are linked to your position and, and what they were expecting, you can say, hang on a minute, we've achieved everything you wanted to from the beginning. So what have, what have we missed out here? And that's when you get the real learning coming through. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like listening to you talk as well, it sort of reminded me of the concept of the butterfly effect. And I think like it plays so true when it comes to general retention is like small little details along the way of your user's journey, like can send them in one direction or the other. And it really starts like from the very, very beginning. The first time they see an ad, that expectation that's set in their mind, by the time they come to speak to sales team, what they're told, what they see when they get into the product, how they experience it, the bugs they have. And like, the experiences throughout that journey can really dictate like if somebody's going to stick around with you for longer or not. And uh, really like the minutest of details that you might seem and think that are insignificant can be, play a big part in like the ultimate success uh, or failure of the business. Uh, it, it, it's so true. I remember there's a, a, a company born in Europe, uh, Revolut, and it came out and it was, uh, had this huge virality. And I remember using the products and like the, 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 you know, the, the, the main proposition was to not pay FX fees. And at the time, I mean, it was going on holiday, fine, you know, in the grand scheme of my life, how many FX fees was I paying? And like, not that much that I really cared about, but everyone was loving this product, right? Yeah. And then I tried it out and it was kind of, it was funny because there were so many bugs and issues wrong with this product, um, but no one, get, no one cared. 
no yeah. no one cared they because it was this kind of they had a huge brand affinity because they positioned themselves as we're going up against the banks who are ripping you off on fx fees and but you know was this a problem people really cared about but they made it one and they it just was headed the bank <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they created this narrative that right at the top of the funnel all the way through to people onboarding that meant that even if they had a bad product experience because their expectations were hey, you're a scrappy startup with a big mission to go and screw over the banks that are screwing me over. I'm going to support you. And yeah. it's kind of, that is the importance all the way through the funnel. What are the expectations? What's the affinity with your brand? And, and how are you having that continuous conversation? This is a, one of the negative sides of Outbound is that if you don't have a good marketing to support that narrative because you're, you're a sales-led company versus a marketing-led company, uh, it can make that dif difficult because you have to start from every conversation setting the scene and explaining that positioning from the, from the beginning yeah. when it becomes really synergetic is when you have them working together and in, in a kind of you know beautiful synergy where that messaging resonates and as soon as they come to you you're just taking them through the funnel all you need is a slack channel with uh, snippets from your your calls feeding the product marketers uh cool exactly. i want to i want to save some time we're running out of time now uh, question ask every guest sure. that joins the show um, let's imagine a hypothetical scenario that you join a new company, churn and retention is not doing great. The CEO comes to you and says, hey, Alfie, like we really need to turn things around. We've got 90 days to try and make a dent. You're in charge. What are you going to do? The catch being, you're not going to tell us, I'm going to go speak to customers, figure out what the biggest problem is and pick that. You're going to run with something <laughs> that's worked for you in the past. Uh, so you don't need to know about the company. You're just going to say, what would you do if you had 90 days and pick something that you've seen work in the past? Yeah, I mean, that's tricky because I think the number one thing is to pick up the phone and speak to all your customers. <laughs> uh, but if I, if, I, if I had that tool taken away from me, uh, I would want to understand exactly in that list of customers, you are going to have some who do uh, are retaining really well, don't churn and have great, great usage of your product. And then, you know, maybe it's just the majority that are churning. I would want to do a deep analysis of understanding uh, all of the firmographics around that company, what makes the ones... What, what are the indicators of someone being a good, having good usage on the, uh, on the platform and being a good customer? And then are there any trends? And then I'd look to reverse engineer that and understand, okay, we have this 5% of our customers are crazy in love with us. Uh, they've got great usage, uh, but on the sales end, these are not who we're targeting in a marketing uh, fa fashion in our position and our, our, the way we're speaking and what we're trying to focus on, on, on who we're closing. Then I would look to retro um, engineer that the whole way through the funnel, make sure that A, we're targeting those people, uh, B, that in the sales pipeline, those companies are being prioritized in terms of the amount of effort you put in to what's, you know, where you deprioritize. And all of those customers that are a lower fit, that have lower retention, I want to understand, is it a product issue or is it really just they're not the right fit for the product? And if it isn't, if it's more a fit problem, I would train the reps to look for those indicators of a bad fit and then deprioritize them in the pipeline. Very nice. Uh, and I love as well, like how you always go back to your roots with sales and figuring out like who to uh, close at the end of the day. Definitely. I think that's like, for me, uh, it's always like just the closest you can go to the first initial interaction and figure out what the problem is that's causing churn, like the greater impact it has because it has a compounding impact the further you go up the funnel as well when it comes to churn and retention. So last question, what's one thing you know today about churn and retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? Oh, wow. Um, 
<clears throat> that's that's a tough one. I think it kind of goes back to what I said in, in the previous answer. It fundamentally boils down to quality in, quality out. If you're speaking to the right people, uh, you're going to have success, whether it's a customer, whether it's, you know, for your own uh, personal branding or who you're messaging out to on, on LinkedIn and making posts for, you know, the right content or the right product in front of the right person has a lot more traction than if it's in front of the wrong person. So there's always an element of, okay, can I change my audience or is the only thing I can change is my product? And sometimes it's a lot easier just pivot your audience and then you can take off. Yeah. And quality versus quantity for sure. I love that. Um, cool. So Alfie, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. I really enjoyed our chat. Is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with uh, anything they should be aware of? Like how can they keep up to speed with your work? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so feel free to uh, add me on LinkedIn. Um, there's a, a link in my uh, description that's got a link to, uh, you can schedule a coffee with me if you want to meet and chat with me. I'm really open to meet people in my community. Uh, I've got a newsletter that you can also access through there. I write once a week uh, called Rocket GTM, uh, really aimed around go-to-market strategy for 0 to 10 million revenue startups. Uh, and just come and say hello. I, you know, I love to speak to the people that are listening to this stuff. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, we can definitely drop some notes as well in the show notes for the listeners if anybody wants to check that out too. Um, so Alfie, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure having you today. I really enjoyed this discussion and I wish you best of luck now going forward. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you, and you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.